All right. Well, uh, today is Father's Day, and in honor of Father's Day, we'll be taking a look at Ephesians 4 to look at the depravity of the Gentiles. Uh, that'd be a very fitting way to approach our Father's Day today. I'm joking, of course. Uh, we'll, we'll be in Ephesians 4, not because it's Father's Day. We're actually going to be in Ephesians 4 because it's the next section of our passage. Uh, so we'll be, we'll be picking up right where Wes left off last week. If you will please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We're starting in verses 17, going all the way to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ." Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. As the reading of God's word, you may be seated. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll begin. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you abundantly, Lord, for the mercy and grace you have poured out on us. We have seen in your word how we have become united to you, Lord, how from the foundation of the world you have chosen us in you. Um, Lord, we, we thank you for this new reality, this new life in which we stand as believers, uh, given every spiritual gift in the heavenly places. And we thank you for the unity of the body, for my brothers and sisters here. Um, we thank you, Lord, just for how you have joined us together and knitted us together, and how you, together, we are called to walk in the newness of life. And we just pray, Lord, as we approach your text today, that you would help me to be faithful in the proclamation of your word. You'd help me to have a clear mind and to adequately teach your word as it is prepared for us today. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would grant them uh, open hearts and ears to hear that they will be built up and edified in the body by through love, through the proclamation of your word. We thank you, we ask this in Jesus' name. All right, so we are, we are actually continuing on in a really a very pivotal part of the book of Ephesians. Um, so for the vast majority of our time in this book, what Paul has done is he's actually spent just his entirety just unpacking for us these glorious and rich truths about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done about his church. This is, he spent the first three chapters doing only that. And then in chapter four, Paul begins to actually shift gears and he begins to take those truths that he has preached and proclaimed to them. And he actually begins to give them a practical application out of them. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't give a single imperative for the entirety of the first three chapters. He only starts doing it in chapter 4. And I, I, I want us to see, as we begin our text today, that this is actually part of one whole unit with the beginning of chapter 4. It actually flows out of it. So we saw back previously in chapter 4, verse 1, this call for us to walk worthy according to the calling which we're called. And we've seen a lot throughout that section about the unity of the body. 
It's a theme that comes up frequently. Our call to walk in a manner worthy of our calling involves the maintaining of the unity of the uh, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we also saw this. We saw these many parts of this unity that we have. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father, one body. And as part of this one body, we are joined and knit together. The Lord has provided in this body various parts that each have their own unique role in the building up of the body. And we need to keep this in mind as we approach this text today, because it actually flows out of what Paul has already said. It flows out of that section. And so as we read it today, we need to keep this in mind. I actually want to kind of put a pin in that because we're going to actually revisit this theme a little later on in the teaching, and we're going to see how it all kind of ties together. So starting in verse 17, as we actually approach our passage itself, I mean, right off the bat, I, I just want to just to in, introduce this. What we're really given here is actually a very dark picture of the Gentiles. Um, they are in a state of very advanced sin. Paul calls the Ephesian believers to not walk as the Gentiles, and he uses this very vivid description. He paints this very morbid picture of where the Gentiles are at currently. Uh, and this is really part of Paul's exhortation. We have to see it in that light. He's using their example to really press home this point that they should not walk as they do. Um, and moreover, I want to take a look at this description because... If you notice how Paul begins this section, he begins as one testifying in the Lord. As we, as we hear this, we need to kind of grasp that what Paul is giving us is actually a very solemn charge. It's a very urgent charge. It's something that Paul is trying to press upon the conscience of his hearers. It's something that we need to hear and we need to take to heart. So that being said, let's, let's begin looking at the context that Paul sets up for us in verse 17. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians. Paul is encouraging them not to walk as Gentiles. Interestingly enough, the Ephesians technically are Gentiles. They are, what Paul says back in chapter 2, Gentiles according to the flesh. So they are, they are technically a non-Jewish entity. They are a body, a church body that is comprised of non-Jewish believers. That is what it means to be a Gentile. And we notice something interesting that Paul doesn't actually identify the Ephesians as Gentiles in this passage. He doesn't identify them with them. He actually calls them to a life that is different from how the Gentiles walk. And so that, is, that leads us to the contrast that Paul is giving us. The Ephesians previously as Gentiles walked in a certain manner along with the rest of the Gentiles and they are to do that no longer. That no longer characterizes who they are in their identity in Christ. So that is the, that is the contrast in the context that Paul sets up right, us, right off the bat in verse 17. So let's, let's take a look at the description Paul gives, this very, this very dark description, this, this very deep, advanced state of sin that the Gentiles are in. So... I want to point something out. I, each one of these descriptions could honestly be a short Sunday school teaching. They really could. Like the futility of the mind, all those things could really, honestly, they, they deserve a lot more attention than what we're able to give them today. Um, so what, what I really just want to do is I just want to kind of give a flyover of this. I want to just give some brief commentary on each kind of part of the description, but we don't need to spend too long here to really get the point that Paul's trying to drive home to us. 
Um, and what I also want to draw your attention to is just look at the description that Paul gives. This is from the end of verse 17 all the way to verse 19. I want you to notice that there's a progression in how Paul approaches this. Paul begins to describe the Gentiles in their state of mind. And that state of mind, that sinful state of mind, is actually the result of a sinful state of the heart. And because the heart is in a state of sin, therefore the will and desires, likewise, sin comes out of the, sin comes out of the heart. So there's a progression there. It's kind of like a telescopic, telescopic description. You have a telescope with, as you unfold it and bring it out, each part kind of funnels into the next part. So I want us to keep that in mind, and we're actually going to approach this description with that kind of structure. We're going to look first at the sinful mind of the Gentiles, and we're going to be moving into the sinful heart, into the sinful actions. Again, just kind of offering a brief commentary on each little part as we go through, um, not trying to spend all day, all of our Father's Day, hearing about the depravity of the Gentiles. Um, so first, the sinful mind of the Gentiles. So uh, this, this, uh, this passage spans from the end of verse 17 and goes into verse 18. The, the mind of the Gentiles is described in these three ways, futile, darkened in understanding, and ignorant. To put this another way, this might be a little more simple. The Gentiles lack in wisdom, they lack in understanding, and they lack in knowledge. They lack wisdom because their thinking is futile. So the, the word futility, it's often translated vanity, and it's, and it's a word we actually see a lot of in Scripture. Um, it's not actually the same exact word that we would see in like the book of Ecclesiastes, for example. That's a different word, but the concept is actually exactly the same. The idea of futility or vanity conveys this sense of pointlessness. So the Gentiles are thinking in a way that is pointless, fruitless. It doesn't actually produce any profit. Um, so I, I reference the book of Ecclesiastes. You think about this constant theme we hear in this book, how in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, life under the sun, everything is vanity. Everything is a chasing after the wind. I mean, if you, if you really think about, I can't think of a more compelling picture of what it means to just be engaged in a pointless task than trying to chase after the wind. I mean, it, even if you caught the wind, I mean, what would you even do with the wind once you caught it? I mean, there's, there's, just, there's no better picture I can think of for the idea of pointlessness. But that's, that's the idea of what we're given for what the Gentiles think like. They are in this state where they are living in God's creation, where God has given us things in creation that are meant to be enjoyed, that are meant to reflect his goodness, and they seek satisfaction, pleasure, and purpose out of those things and out of those things alone, when all of those things are meant to be found in the creator who provided those things. That is the state of futility. So the Gentiles also lack an understanding. Their understanding is darkened. So think of this in terms of the opposite. Like what, what does it mean, for example, to be enlightened? What does it mean for your mind to be enlightened? But it, it means that you can actually better understand and recognize what truth is. That's kind of the idea that enlightened means. To be darkened in understanding is, the, is just the complete opposite of that. To be darkened in understanding, actually, your ability to understand and comprehend truth is actually obscured, and it's actually distorted. It's, it's a blindness of the mind. It's a type of spiritual blindness that prevents the Gentiles from, a, from 
being capable of actually grasping the truth. And so the Gentiles also lack knowledge. They are ignorant. And in their ignorance, Paul says that they are alienated from the life of God. So it's an interesting word choice here. How, how simply does the lack of information cause alienation? And it's just the simple answer to that is that this ignorance is not just simply a lack of information. This, what this ignorance is that Paul describes is actually, if you look at the, the last half of verse 18, it's an ignorance that actually flows out of the hardness of heart. The Gentiles do not understand because they will not understand. It, it's a, they, no knowledge can actually penetrate the hard stone barrier of the heart that we see. That is the state of the mind the Gentiles are in. The state of mind flows from the state of their heart. We just saw that it's the result of a hardened heart, their ignorance. And so what is a hardened heart? A hardened heart, to put it simply, is a heart that is stubbornly fixed in its rebellious state. If you'd like to turn over to Romans 1, or if you'd like just to keep a, like a thumb there or just a marker there, it's, it's, it's a parallel passage to this one. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time in Romans 1, but I just want to point out that Romans 1 is very much identical to this passage. But what it actually does is it gives a lot more expansion upon these ideas. It actually takes these ideas and actually gives them, it fleshes them out a lot more. Um, so and it, it's a good, I'll actually be kind of referencing it kind of back and forth here. I don't expect you to turn there, but just, to, just for your own learning's sake, you can kind of keep that in mind as we go along. Um, so in Romans 1, starting in verse 20, here's what we see. We see that God has revealed himself to all his creation through his creation, and the stubborn Gentile refuses to honor him as their creator. They are given this general knowledge of who God is, but they suppress that truth. They suppress that truth in futility, in unrighteousness. They don't even want to acknowledge him in their thoughts. And you can kind of see this idea in Romans 1, kind of in, in different parts of it, kind of scattered throughout it. Looking back in our text in verse 19, we're given there, then from the hardened heart a symptom of what a hardened heart is. It's callousness. To be, th think of when you touch a hot surface and your first time ever touching it, you immediately feel the heat and your hand recoils just because of the damage that's being done to your hand. If you continue to touch this hot surface, over time what you're going to find is a callus begins to form. Uh, the, the word for callous actually in this text actually conveys the idea of like a stonemason's hands. The stonemason's hands is calloused over time from just touching and moving stone. And it's just, it's hard. You touch it, it's rough. That's the idea. That's what happens to the heart in a state of sin. So if we think about when we first sin, we immediately feel this sense of guilt and shame. It's, it's a natural response of our conscience. But as that sin is repeatedly indulged in, the heart begins to harden. There's no longer that same response of the conscience that comes as you continuously, as you did the first time. The more you do it, the more numb you get. The voice of your conscience just keeps getting quieter and quieter as you go. This is, it's the progressive nature of the effects of sin on the heart. So the mind is fallen because the heart is fallen. And because the heart is fallen, the desires too are fallen. So looking at verse 19, 
in their callousness, the Gentiles have given themselves over to sensuality. So sensuality, it, the idea of it is, is it's this relentless seeking to gratify the senses. It's this relentless desire for pleasure. And the phrase given over is actually a very interesting phrase. It's actually, I think in my mind, it's probably one of the most like scary things I see in scripture when I think about God's judgments. I mean, honestly, next to the final judgment itself, this one actually is a, a particularly uh, frightening one, especially to someone who is walking in a repeated pattern of disobedience. When someone is actually living in a very overly indulgent, sinful life, Rome, to be given over is actually a, a form of judgment. So if you look back over to Romans 1, again, Romans 1 has the same content in it, but it actually uses this phrase in a different form. It says that God gave them over. So in the, our, our passage, they have given themselves over. Romans 1, God has given them over. And we're kind of with this question of like, which one really is it? Um, the answer is yes. That's what the answer is. Yes. They have both, both God and both the sinner are willful. They, are, they have an active role in what it means to be given over. So what happens is this, is that the wicked continue in this suppression of the truth. They continue to suppress the truth of God. They continue to pursue idolatry. And what happens is, is that God actually removes his gracious restraints that keeps them from being far worse than they are. And, then, and honestly, that's a reality for every single person, is that the reality is, is that we all have this natural sin nature from Adam that we inherited from Adam, but we, we see it with each every person, they all experience it to, differ, to greater or lesser degrees. And this is really, as we see, it's from God's kind providence, that God has his purposes with the wicked, and God has his purposes with the, the events and all the things that shape us as sinful people, in which our sin will manifest itself. That's, it's part of God's kindness and his common grace. So when God hands someone over, what he effectively says to the sinner is, let your will be done. The sinner refuses to say to God, let your will be done. So God instead says that to the sinner. Think of like our sin nature is like this big tank of water with a faucet. And what God allows the sinner to do is, if they continue in their rebellion, is he says, okay, you can now turn the faucet in as much as you want. And they just crank it all the way over. And when you look at what happens in scripture, when someone is given over, what happens is, is that they are filled with desire. That's actually what we see in Romans 1. We see the phrase, God gave them up three times. And in each individual time, the result of that is a filling of sinful desire. And, and that, that is what we see with the Ephesians here now. They are... Once they are given over, they just start to relentlessly pursue sensuality. This is the fallen desire of the, of the Gentiles. And the desires are fallen and the will is fallen. Look at the end in verse 19. They pursue every kind of impurity with greediness. They want it and they pursue it more and more and more. And if you're looking back to, if you, if, you, if you have been looking back to Romans 1, you can probably take your marker out at this point because I'm, I'm not going to continue to reference it. Uh, but if you want to get a better view of the kind of impurity they practice, just, just go to verse 26 and just read to the end. Like the, the picture that Paul gives there in Romans 1 is actually far more grotesque than the one we're actually given here. 
Um, and I would encourage you just to get a better picture of this. Just look at Romans 1, verse 26, and just read on to the end. Uh, we, we, for our sake to t uh, today, we're not going to have time to spend much time there. But uh, I just uh, wanted to bring that up just for your own sake. And uh, we, will, we will kind of conclude this section of the sinful will of Gentiles. So that's what we've seen. The mind of the Gentiles has fallen because the heart has fallen. The desires are fallen because the heart has fallen. And the will has fallen because the desires are fallen. There's a, there's a telescopic description. Excuse me. I'm going to get some water here. I've, I'm a little dry there. Okay. So Paul has very effectively driven this point home of the, the current depraved state of the Gentiles. So the Ephesians, going back to the context that Paul set up, the Ephesians are, they live in this context of the Gentile nation, but they are to contrast themselves from the Gentiles that are around them. The condition of the Gentiles is one of absolute and advanced, uh, advanced sin and rebellion. That is the state that the Gentiles are in. That is, the, that is the condition Paul describes as he encourages the Ephesians to walk differently. So let's just pause for a moment. Let's just take what Paul has said about the Ephesians, and let's just let's try to bring it to our level. So Paul uses this type of reasoning. He says, this is what the culture around you does. He gives us this, this very clear picture of it, and he says, you are to walk otherwise. That is the essence of what Paul says to the Ephesians. Now, if we were to kind of take this and apply it to ourselves, I, I know there's probably this temptation to want to like look at all the things you may have seen on the news, and just we, we see we do see a lot of depravity in our culture. But I, I want to kind of press that what we're kind of seeing here at the Gentiles is actually somewhat unique. It's it's not unique as far as a sense like they are sinners, but it's unique in the sense as the, the level of advanced sin that they're in, the the level of depravity that they're actually exercising is unique. You, you see in scripture that there's times when certain groups of people are, are notably marked for how bad they are. You think of the people during the time of Noah. You think of the Sodom and Gomorrah, or the Canaanites, for example. So some people at times are just picked out for just, these are just these exceedingly wicked people, more, more so than what you typically see in a typical sinful person or sinful group. So I don't think that we can really take this necessarily and just give kind of a one-to-one -one kind of, this is our culture. We're kind of meant to kind of look at our culture in the same way. What I actually kind of want to submit to you is that we actually still see, in spite of all the things that are going wrong in our culture, we still actually see the, the good remnant of the Judeo-Christian ethics still kind of has had a strong influence in the culture around us. We still see its influence there. Um, we still actually still see a very strong population of professing believers. Now, I know that that number is exactly in question as far as how many are sincere believers or not, or truly regenerated, or even orthodox believers or not. But I just want to say that our culture today is just not comparable to the Ephesians at the time. And so what I want to just to say to you guys is that there's this, I want to press that there's kind of a danger as we approach a list like this. We, well, we might, there's a subtle temptation that we might have to look at this list, to, to kind of think to ourselves that, you know, that list, I'm reading that list, that's, that's definitely not me. I'm, I'm definitely not lost like they are. I'm definitely not one of them. Um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm on the side of the good guys in this passage. There's a temptation to kind of read this into the text. And, and here's the thing. The reality is, is that we don't actually need to be so far down the tubes like the Gentiles were to actually suffer that same alienation from God that the Gentiles did. Uh, we, we may not sin in the same manner or in the same degree as the Gentiles do, but the reality is, is that in, with the fall of Adam, with every human being being born in Adam, every human being having that sin nature, every human being to some degree has sin that affects the mind and the heart and the desires and the will. This is a, this is a category thing that Paul paints for us frequently as for every single person. You think about Romans 3 where Paul says there is none good, none righteous, not even one. So we, the, the wrong response to this list is to look at it and compare yourself to it, compare yourself to it, not see yourself in it, and, and just conclude from there that you're not really in the same kind of status as those people. That, that's a wrong way to approach it. See, the, the reality is what we're actually seeing from the Gentiles is just one side of the ditch. It's just, it's just one ditch to fall into for a sinful, rebellious people. There actually it was an entirely different ditch that the other group, there's, there's two main groups during the time in biblical history, Gentile and Jew. The other group actually fell into this other side of the ditch. So the Jews at, and the Jews at that time, the, the, the folly of the Jews, the rebellion of the Jews, it was a different kind of rebellion, but it was still just equally as sinister. So the Jews, they were the Hebrew nation of Israel. They were given the law. They had the law. They relied upon the law. They were the circumcision that Paul describes back in chapter 2 of Ephesians. They had the temple. They had all these physical markers and identifiers that they looked to and relied upon as their identity of the people of God. And the, the reality is, is that this, this folly really isn't limited to just the Jews. I mean, while we are definitely different from the Jews in many respects, the, the folly of the Jews, the mentality of the Jews, to this, this idea to look to ourselves, our ethics, our morals, look to physical identifiers about ourselves that uniquely mark us as the people of God, that's still a temptation for everybody. That's still a temptation even for us Gentiles, which is what we technically are. I mean, look, I'm the people, what I'm referring to here is just kind of a, it's, we all can look at ourselves at our own morality in some way, and lessen our own need for a savior in comparison to others. That is, this, that is kind of the error of the Jews. We can all look to physical markers that mark us as God's people. And the reality is that there are people who think like this that just fill churches across America. They would look at what Paul has said about the Gentiles and go, man, they really need Jesus. I mean, I've made some mistakes. Nobody's perfect, but I mean, I, I pay my taxes. I love my family. I attend church every Sunday. I was baptized twice at a local retreat, but those people, they need Christ, and we, which is true. They do need Jesus. They do need a Savior, but the problem is, is that so do we. We likewise need a Savior. When you, when you break this mentality down, what you find in its simplest form is what what people often trust, what their hope is at the end of the day, is that their own morality, their own physical markers, their physical presence in a church, the physical baptism they received, really is, is the grounds for which they'll receive eternal life. 
And this will be completely divorced from actually a true saving faith in Christ. And what you find is these people are actually the hardest people to witness to because they have this kind of Christian veneer that's really hard to penetrate. It's, it's really hard to like speak to someone who occupies a church, who's been baptized, who is politically conservative, or just has some sort of markers that parallels with the Orthodox Christian church. They're hard to reach because it's hard to make, to make known to that person their fallen state, even though the fallen state of a person who, who thinks that way is really no different from the Gentiles in its substance. It's different in its form. They're not as bad as the Gentiles are. These people are actually very moral people most of the time. But it's, it's the same in its substance. It is both the same depravity, sinful nature that comes from Adam. It's the same thing. And so all this really is is just this Christianized version of the error of the Jews, and it's just so prevalent in our context today. See, like I said, we just don't live in Ephesus with the Ephesians. Like when Paul encourages them to look around them, see the depravity of the culture, and walk different than that, we just don't live in that same context. It's just different from us. We live in an entirely different context that has just this big influence of just Christian, professing Christian, pseudo-Christian thought. And that's, that's the world that we live in. But the call to it is really exactly the same. See, just as Paul encouraged the Ephesians to not walk as the other Gentiles walk, the other Gentiles, of course, being the people that surround the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, its physical address was in the epicenter of pagan idolatry in that time. Their neighbors were the Gentiles they spoke of, the people they saw at the market, the people they saw walking down the road, the people that they would you know, bump shoulder, whichever. These are the people in their everyday lives. And words is not like that, but just because we aren't as bad as the Gentiles are, that doesn't mean that just by category of being American or conservative, or even just having a lot of church stuff in our country that we're therefore excluded from the same status as them. That's not the case. That's not the case. See, the reality is, is you, there is ultimately really still today only two kinds of people. There really is. But it's not just Jew or Gentile anymore. Today, since the resurrection of Christ, there are only the two kinds of people are you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Those are the two options. You are either one or the other. There's no other man-made distinction we can add to ourselves that influences that state. You are either in Adam, in the flesh, of the old creation, living in rebellion towards God, living in sin, and walking hopelessly condemned, or you are in Christ. It's one or the other. If you are in Christ, you are someone who has come to know and see your sin. You have come to know and see your need for a Savior. And if you come to Christ as a Savior, to be a, to be a Savior to you, you have to come with this empty hand having nothing that you think would commend yourself to God, not a single thing. No, no political stance, no moral boast, nothing. You come to Christ with an empty hand, and you make your only boast what his son did for you that you couldn't do yourself. That is, the, that is the reality of the gospel. We contribute absolutely nothing to it. We have nothing in ourselves, nothing that we can add to ourselves, whether it be Israel with the physical temple, the physical circumcision, the promises of God, even those things couldn't bridge that gap between Israel's hard heart and the chasm that existed between them and God. There is, no, there is nothing physical 
There is no morality, no work of righteousness we can really add to become in Christ or to become justified before God. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you have no boast but him. You trust purely in him by faith alone. That's it. That's it. And so what we're seeing here, just to bring this full circle, is like what Paul is encouraging the Ephesians to do. Notice how I remember, remember what I said before. Paul does not actually identify the Ephesians with the other Gentiles, though they are themselves Gentiles. What Paul does is he points out that Ephesians now belong to a new category of people. Paul in Galatians 3 says that in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have, been, you have put on Christ. You are now part of a new category of people, a new creation people. Everyone who exists in Adam, in the flesh, whether they are Jew, whether they are Gentile, in unbelief, they are all part of Adam. They are all part of this new old creation that's passing away, that's condemned to die, that's condemned to be judged. In Christ, you are part of a new people where that distinction goes away. If you, are an un, if you are a Jew who's trusted in Christ or a Gentile who's trusted in Christ, you are part of a new creation. Actually, here's the, the very ironic thing in Scripture. For the Jew who relies upon the law and trusts in the law, thinking that the law justifies them, the, the actual prescription is that they have to keep the entire law, every last part of it without a single flaw. And if they don't keep the entirety of the law, Paul says that their circumcision, which is they boast in as being the, the physical marker of their identity, their circumcision is uncircumcision. Paul actually says the Jew who relies upon the law, doesn't keep the law, actually is effectively a Gentile. And the Gentiles who trust in Christ, they are actually called the true children of Abraham. They are called the true and better Israel. So interestingly enough, in Christ, like this distinction between Jew and Gentile is actually elevated to a much more higher state, but it's ultimately dissolved, like the substance of it's totally different. It's now in Christ or it's in Adam. And so this is what the Ephesians are encouraged to do. They are encouraged to walk as a new creation. The Gentiles around them, their unbelieving neighbors, their unbelieving countrymen, they are still lost. They're still hopelessly lost. And so the Ephesians, now that they no longer belong to that people, are to walk totally different from that people. The Ephesians are to, in a sense, walk as they have learned Christ. So look at verse 20 in our, in our passage today. Looking at verse 20. Paul, after speaking of the Gentiles, says, But that is not the way that you have learned Christ. And there's an interesting part right at the end of that verse, assuming you have heard about Christ and were taught in him. And what I just want to point out to you is like, I struggled with this verse for a little bit, trying to think like what Paul, what, what the point of adding that part in. And I'm, to be honest, I'm still not entirely sure what Paul was getting at with adding that second part. But the ironic thing is, is that Paul says, assuming you have heard about Christ, if there was any Ephesian who has not heard about Christ, and was there in Ephesus at the church during the reading of this letter, they certainly have heard about Christ now, by this point. After hearing the first three chapters, well, there weren't chapters back then, but after hearing the first part of Paul's letter where Paul unfolds the glorious work of Christ, they've heard about it now. But it's even more ironic because the church in Ephesus was the only church I can recount in Scripture 
where Paul actually stands before the elders and says, I am absolutely innocent of the blood of all of you. I have proclaimed to you the entire counsel of God. Paul actually says to the Ephesians, he has given them everything that they need. Paul spent a considerable amount of time in Ephesus. If you actually want to look back at it, it's from 18 to 20. It's actually one of the most like eventful times in the entire book of Acts. Like, Paul's time in Ephesus was absolutely crazy. You had magicians burning books. You had demons beating men. I mean, you had a, it was a crazy time. Paul spent a lot of time there. And when you see Paul laboring and preaching the gospel to a people, what Paul says is he doesn't just proclaim Christ. He actually says he tries to form Christ in them. Paul labors in this ministry to actually, as he's entrusted to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, is to actually not only just proclaim to them, but to teach them. It's as part of this role as the Great Commission where we are called to both make disciples, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. It's as part of the Great Commission. And Paul fulfills that so beautifully with each, each, each group that he encounters on his missionary journeys. And you can tell that Paul just has this genuine love for the people that he talks to. If you read the end of Galatians, Paul just has this deep love and affection for the people he's writing towards. But the Ephesians have actually learned Christ very well. They have, they have been had the whole counsel of God proclaimed to them. And so it's, look, it's, it's interesting that if you notice the structure of this section, so Paul gives an exhortation and a description, and then Paul gives a description and then like another exhortation. We kind of see this flip back and forth. And so the idea of learning Christ is to learn of his person, to learn of his work, to learn of his commands. And I, I, I would encourage you as individual believers, whether you are a brand new believer, a struggling believer, and honestly, whoever you are, it's actually... One of the greatest things that we can do as believers, the most valuable things we can do, is to learn Christ, is to learn who he is, to learn more about what he's accomplished. And this would actually take you your entire life. You will, you will learn such beautiful things about Christ as you study him more deeply in the scriptures, and you will still find that you have so much to learn. Like The mark of someone who's truly learning Christ is they also oftentimes are humbled by the fact that, man, the work of Christ just is so deep and wonderful. It's so rich. Learning Christ is, is paramount and it's key for a believer. But how Paul uses learning Christ here is that that is actually the point of contrast for the Ephesians. The Gentiles and their depravity, that is like their example not to walk that way. What they learned of Christ is their example of how to walk, which Paul will actually get to here in the next couple of verses. So those who belong to Christ are identified with Christ, and they are to live as they have learned from Christ. We follow in his example. We can reference Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul tells the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. We follow his teachings, his great commission to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. It, it's, it's a part of discipleship to learn Christ. And you see, this is not only what I want to labor here. Is this is not only our point of contrast, but this is our first step in our new walk. What I, what I mean by this is that just as Paul spent the first three chapters in Ephesians not giving a single command, but only teaching Christ, much in the same way as like when imperatives come to us as believers, such as not to walk as the Gentiles walk, 
understand that they are given to us first and foremost as people who are identified with Christ, as people who belong to Christ, as people who have already been had their sins paid for, who are already forgiven in Christ, justified in Christ, who have the hope of eternal life in Christ. That's where these imperatives come. The imperatives come to you as a believer. And so when you're instructed in this way, you're not instructed in the sense of like, if I can just keep myself good enough, I will remain in Christ. I can keep myself there, or I can even get to there if I just improve myself enough. Look, when we, when we begin, think of what Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 3. When we begin to know Christ, how do we start? By faith. You start by faith, purely by faith. When Paul then asked them, how do you continue then to walk? Just the same way you began, by faith. We continue by faith. We begin by faith. We continue by faith. And we shouldn't see these imperatives as being an obstacle to that. We should understand that Paul instructs us, the Lord instructs us as his children, the same way that a father would do to their children. Sometimes the warnings are severe. Sometimes the imperatives are strong. But they are given to us as people identified in Christ by faith alone. Christ is a starting point for understanding how we are then to walk. We walk as people in Christ, not to become people in Christ. That is a key difference. That is an important difference. So your first step, it really, is to learn Christ. It's valuable. It's, it's, it's really beautiful to study the scriptures and learn of Christ. But I would encourage you more and more is one of the most important things is, is that without knowing who Christ, without knowing what Christ has done for you in the gospel, without knowing what Christ has given to you, mortifying your sin, fighting your sin, walking this walk, it, it's perilously difficult when you're living in this fight, fighting for your assurance, fighting for this, this sense of comfort, constantly looking at yourself and seeing you falling, seeing yourself failing. You need this constant comfort of Christ. See, there's a reason why we're actually encouraged to gather together so often. There's a reason why we're given all these pictures of the work of Christ. It's, it's because we're so prone to forget. We're so prone to forget what Christ has done as we Come on Sunday, we're, we're refreshed, we're edified by the word, and we go off for the rest of the week, and we struggle. We, we, we walk out there into the fallen world, we work and we toil and we struggle, and we come back the next week forgetting what we just learned the week previously. And it's actually a common condition of the people of God. We all forget this. And I will say, if, if, you, if you find yourself in a rut where you're actually, for, for our sake here, walking as the Gentiles walk, you might actually go back and find that it's it, it not so much is a power of the need to exercise your willpower to get out of it. It's not so much just simply a need to change. It, there's really behind it all when you really break it down. At some point in time, you forgot what Christ did. At some point in time, you forgot that the Father loves you. You forgot your identity as who you are in him. And you forgot what you have in him. And so you get stuck in this rut where you start falling into sin and sin just starts scattering your mind, all these comforts and consolations you have, and you have to just keep getting them back. If you are in this state, remember Christ. Remember what he's done. Remember his love for you. So that being said, let's look at the next part of Paul's exhortation. Uh, so next part is we've learned Christ, and as we've learned Christ, we are to put off the old man, and to put on 
the new man. Put off the old man who is corrupt according to deceitful lust. Put on the new man who is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's a putting off, there's a putting on. Seems very simple. What I want to draw our attention to is the fact that this is not, this is not in some sense a specific command. What this is, is this is Paul telling us to take up these two taking up these, this nature. What Paul is dealing with is an issue of nature, not so much just a behavioral action. See, there's, there's, there's a reality. When you're, when you're in Christ, you've been transferred to, in a sense, a different kind of reality, so to speak. You were once, your reality, your life was identified as being an Adam. And when you are in Christ, you are in this, this new reality where you are part of the new creation. And this is what Paul is encouraging them to Back in your former lives, you walked dead in your sins. You were identified with this old earth. You were identified with your fallen father, Adam, who sinned and brought all of his progeny into rebellion. In this new age, this new creation that you're a part of, this new humanity, this is now true for you and to live and to press into that new reality. It's a reality that we have to press into. And that's, that's really the kind of the substance of what Paul is saying and you know, honestly, I could probably spend up here all day giving very specific details about what it means to put on, put off the old man, put on the new. I mean, honestly, like in the rest of the book of Ephesians, we're going to deal with a lot of commands specifically. Like we're going to we're going to start seeing Paul address wives and husbands and fathers and workers and bosses. He's going to start addressing everybody in very unique circumstances. And I want to kind of save the specifics for when we get there in Ephesians. I actually want to take up a different approach and just point out, one, this undergirding reality that's behind this passage. There's an undergirding reality to it. And two, what I want to do once I establish that, I want to point out a very foundational part that when it comes to putting off the old man and putting on the new, there's actually a very foundational aspect that's oftentimes missed. Oftentimes we miss this. And oftentimes, because we miss it, we oftentimes approach that topic off on the wrong foot. So that's what I want to do. That's how I want to approach it. And like I said, we'll deal with the specifics when we get there in Ephesians. So we are called to put off the old man, put on the new. And here's, I want to point out two different things here about Paul's statement here. One is that we are called to put off the old man. If you look back over in Romans 6, Paul says that the old self has already been crucified in Christ. Your old self is already crucified. Your old self is already dead. And yet here we are called to put off the old self, even though it's already dead. That's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's, we're called to put off this nature, but we're told this nature has actually been crucified with Christ. And then we are told to put on the new man. And interesting, the same thing happens with that one in Scripture. Paul says, if you have been baptized into Christ, you have already put on Christ. So we are to put off what's already, in effect, been put off. And we are to put on what's already been, in effect, put on. What is given to us in Christ. And I just want to point out that though like we see that the old self is crucified, and though we are called to put off the old self, though we are new creations, here's, here's the interesting thing is that the fact that the old man has to be put off just shows that the old man is still in some sense still alive. He's still there. The old man is not gone, gone, totally, not yet. He has a death sentence, but he's still there. See, the old man is our old self, 
who we were prior to Christ. We become a new creation in Christ. We're given a spirit and we have these, this new heart, these new desires, this new proclivity to want to desire to obey God's law. And then we find that the old self, who we thought was dead, actually is still alive and well. Sometimes, actually, he's very strong. Sometimes the old self, if, we, if you read through our confessions that we hold to as Reformed Baptists, they acknowledge just this, this constant back and forth in a believer's life. This back and forth where it's like believers themselves, though they are new creations, are not exempt from falling into sin. They're not exempt from backsliding to falling in a state of sin and continuing therein. Look, there's, the point I'm making with all this is that I, I love in Reformed circles how we are just recovering this doctrine of the new birth and the new creation. And how if you are in Christ, you are a brand new creation. And, you, and there's, this, there's this idea of obedience and holiness that's meant to kind of characterize you now as a believer. But there's a, there's a concern I have with that is that if we just present the believer as a new creation and nothing else, and that's what we present, we've actually only given half of a biblical anthropology of what a believer is. We've only told half the story. And oftentimes what happens is, is for those who neglect this reality of the remaining old man who's still alive, oftentimes you see that the, what, what it means to be a new creation, the benchmark of it is set just perilously high. Where if you, if you had this struggle with sin, if you had the struggle with weakness, if you struggle even with the besetting sin, you should actually question your salvation because that's not what a new creation is. But I actually want to submit that actually for a believer to struggle with sin, for a believer even in weakness to hate their sin, to long to be delivered of it, that actually is the mark of what it means to be a new creation. Because the old creation still around. We have the new creation, but the old creation still there. And what this is, is there's this tension. There's this tension with the work of Christ that we have to recognize in Scripture. For example, let me give you this. Jesus said the kingdom of God is now. It's right now. But you look around and what you see is you see nations, kingdoms, and rebellion towards God. It certainly doesn't appear that the kingdom of God is now. When Jesus rose again, the new creation's now. We're in the new creation right now. We're, we're actually breathing the resurrection air of the empty tomb right now. But you look around, we're still actually in the old world. We're still in this present evil age. The same is actually true for believers. We're adopted in Christ. We saw that in Ephesians. Paul says in Romans 8, we're waiting for the adoption. We, by the mercy of God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jude says we are waiting for the mercy of God. We're sanctified. Hebrews 10 says that by one sacrifice, Christ has perfected us, being that, but also he's perfected those who are being made perfect. So we are perfected, but not yet perfect. We're being made perfect. So the same is true in this instance. We are new creations, but we're not yet new creations. Not yet. We have the down payment of what it means to be a new creation in regeneration, this down payment of the Spirit. But this reality is that the, the old man himself, he doesn't actually drop off until, until the time when Christ comes. This is actually the Christian hope you actually hear about in so many hymns. The, uh, there is a fount, for example. That's one of my favorite songs, I think, by William Cowper. He talks about the ransomed church of God being saved to sin no more. It's a part of our hope that one day Christ will come back. 
will drop off this wretched body of death that we just struggle with throughout our lives, and we will be made like him. We'll be made new. In the twinkling of a night, it will just be over. This is the reality we have to keep in mind. And I'm, I'm going to kind of speak out of both sides of my mouth here, but though this is true, and I affirm it's true, we have to acknowledge it's true and recognize that as we approach people in the church who struggle with sin and assurance, we have to recognize that what Paul is giving us is not a defeatist view of our fight with sin. It's not a defeatist view. The reality of the old man's there. He's going to be there until Christ returns. But that doesn't actually mean that sin is an impossible foe to beat. Paul says if we by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. There's this contrast of spirit and flesh that Paul uses. Paul is not a Gnostic. That's often a Gnostic thing, but it's not what Paul's doing. But there's this, this kind of dualism there. If you are in Christ, you are in the spirit. If you're Adam, you're in the flesh. If you, by the spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Paul in Galatians 5 says something similar, that those who walk by the spirit won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So we have this multiple reality where what Christ actually gives us is the, the freedom and the ability by his spirit to actually put to death our sin. And that's still a call for us. We acknowledge these, both of these things to be true, the reality of indwelling sin in the believer and the reality of us to walk by the spirit, to put on the old man, to put, sorry, put on the new man, put on the new man and walk in victory over our flesh, to continue to our warfare against our flesh. And the fact that the old man is still around just shows that we're going to be in this continual state of warfare until Christ returns. But this warfare, as I've said before, needs to be recognized as something that is fought from the posture of a rest in Christ, from the identity of a believer. The battle of sanctification and killing sin is a believer's fight. It's not an unbeliever's fight to become a believer. It's not the heathens fight to fight their sin so they can become righteousness. You are given righteousness in Christ, and because you are righteous, this, this call goes to you as someone secure who belongs to Christ. So now that I've kind of labored that point, I want to just kind of end this with what I had said was a very foundational application that we typically miss as we approach this passage. And here's what I'm just going to just, I'm just going to come right out the gate and say it really. If, here's the thing, we have this, this kind of this nasty tendency to over-individualize passages like this. We tend to take it purely down to the individual level, which is true, which is, it, it's, this, this passage has individual application. Most, most assuredly it does. But I think what we often miss is that there is, there is no instruction given to us in Scripture that isn't given in a corporate context. Let me just, let me just kind of defend this idea real quick. This book is written to the Ephesians. It's not written to one Ephesian. It's written to the Ephesians. It's written to an entire church body. It's written to a people, and these people are given these commands. See, the thing is, is that if you, if you were a believer in Ephesus and you weren't there in, in Ephesus for the reading of this letter, you wouldn't have even known Ephesians existed. You wouldn't have even known this letter existed. See, the reality is, is that first century believers didn't actually have their own Bibles. It, they, didn't, they didn't have them. That wasn't something that was available to the common man. Pen and paper was expensive back then, and if it was affordable to a person, the ability to, the ability to read and write is also likewise a rare commodity. It's not as available as it is back here. And so my point with this is that the, we have the view that the church is a very vital component to this command. 
Our identity as believers is a vital component to command, together as believers. Remember how I said this passage flows from the beginning of chapter 4, about the unity we have in Christ, about how the body functions together as individual parts, each one, each one having their own role to build up the body. The reality is, is that we actually need the body of Christ for, to, to execute any of this. We do. I mean, let, let's think about the idea of putting off the old man and fighting sin. What does 1 John tell us if we, if we were to sin, we are to confess our sins to one another? Another believer is assumed in that reality. If you sin, you confess your sin to another believer so that you may be healed. Paul's prescription to someone who's struggling in sin, what does he say? If anyone is stuck in a trespass, this is in Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Another believer is the prescription to someone battling sin. See, there's in our culture today, you've probably encountered this person who believes that, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't necessarily need to be united to a church body. And I, I just want to say that in a New Testament reality, that is completely ridiculous. It, it doesn't exist. This idea of a Lone Ranger Christian functioning healthily and fruitfully on their own doesn't exist. It's not a reality. You, when, when you're on your own, you're detached from the reality that, Paul, that the Lord provides and has designed for you to grow and to be built up, for you to walk in your new identity. The, the new identity of the Ephesians is tied to the fact that they are all part of one body whose head is Christ. That's their identity. That's the identity that they're to use to not walk as the people around them. But if you're not part of a body, if, but you're a believer who is a part, but you're not part of that body, like what, what are you? Like, is that what the thing from the Adams family was? The hand that just kind of walks around? He was just kind of a wayward believer who didn't, wasn't part of a church body? It's like, that doesn't make sense. Think of like Peter's example too of how we are a temple being built up together of living stones, stones that are supported by other stones and are supporting other stones. Without a church body, you're just a stone lying in the grass, getting rained on and snowed on, exposed to the sun, getting weathered and corroded. Honestly, like if you're a believer and you're living outside of the church body, you have to really feel the, you have to really feel the sense of Paul's warning because the reality is, is like the tools that you need to even execute this command are only provided to you in the church. And again, I've kind of labored this idea, but like think of this idea of like the ministry of the word. I mentioned this before. The average Ephesian didn't have their own Bibles. So the only way the Ephesian believer at this time could hear this is to be with the body when this letter was read. That's the only way they'd even know it exists. Bible in the common, hands of the common man wasn't around for the first 1,500 years of the church's existence. And I love the fact that we had all this new technology and this, this wide open access to all this new information. There's just this, this illusion that comes with it that we can actually faithfully execute the Christian life without the body, isolated from the body, without the context of the body. And this is just not true. The reality is it's like, to, to make a bold statement here, if I was forced to make a decision between my own personal devotional word time in the morning and the gathering of the body for the proclamation of the word through a gifted teacher, spirit equipped by the word, by the Lord, to teach the body and build up the body, 
I would every single time pick, I will go with the body. Every single time. Every single time. I want to emphasize like the need for the word and the renewal of the minds because that's part of it. But the, the, the word to an Ephesian is the word that's preached to them by a teacher, by a preacher. That's, that's the reality for them. We live in this new age where it's not the same thing as this age. It's, we have a lot more newer technology, but that reality didn't go away. People have only gotten more unhealthy as they thought that they could actually detach from the local church and still think that they are actually, in some ways, faithfully honoring the Lord. It's not true. It's not a reality. So let me just, let me just kind of end with this, um, this verse, because I actually want to kind of defend this idea from Scripture. And I want you to kind of see it yourself. I want to see it yourself. In Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him wants to see this reality. We need other believers. We need other believers in our lives. We need the church. Paul gives us these commands, but the, without the church, we can't execute these commands. This is an assumed reality. And so I'm, I'm thankful for the body of Christ here. I'm thankful for Grace Covenant. I mean, we couldn't even move to this area until a good church came around. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful what the Lord has provided here. But I just encourage you to continue to hold fast to Christ. And when you're struggling with that, hold fast to another person. Have another person help you, pray for you. You need help. We need help in this life. In this fallen world, as we're waiting for our redemption, we, the Lord has given us the body for this purpose. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for all the things you have provided for us. Lord, you are a faithful God, and you will complete the good work you have started in us. We thank you for, we thank you for your gracious provisions. We thank you for your word, for your son, for the mercy and grace and the eternal life we have. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in our time today, that our fellowship was a blessing to each other. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.